The following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for children. So in order to say no, I had to think about, well, what happens if I do this? Um, what happens if I take him up on, on his invitation? It's so easy to look around us and see what everybody else is doing and wish that we had we could enjoy the same stuff. Mm-hmm. It's easy to look inside at our desires and and everything. But I think it's not so much looking outward and inward as it is looking forward and, of course, looking outward. Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Laura Samara. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. So today on our show, we are going to be interviewing Catholic author Dawn Eden. We are going to be talking to her about two of her books, Thrill of the Chaste and Remembering God's Mercy, Redeem the Past and Free Yourself from Painful Memories. Uh, We did record this a few weeks ago during Holy Week, so you'll notice she makes some references to that. And we recorded via Google Hangout. Yeah, so you'll notice the audio is not quite as crisp as we would love it to be. However, uh, we wanted to interview her Anyway, because this is definitely an important topic of our times, I feel like chastity in 2016, even amongst the church, is not really talked about too much. And very misunderstood. Very misunderstood. So we wanted to put this out on the table as our second podcast episode, and please enjoy. Okay. So, Don, I'm so excited that we're able to talk to you today. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and I'm just so excited that we can talk to you. So we're going to be talking to you today about two uh, of your books that you've written. One, the first one that we'll talk about is called The Thrill of the Chase. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write it and a little bit about what your story is? Sure. Well, I came to write The Thrill of the Chaste uh, while I was a new Christian. Uh, I was born into a Jewish family, and I was a rock journalist in New York City oh, wow. at, during my 20s uh, in the 1990s. Uh, and then uh, when I was 31, uh, I experienced a, a conversion that led me uh, into Christian faith. Uh, at that time, uh, I was baptized at a local Protestant church and started church shopping. And uh, in the meantime, while I was looking for a, for a church that uh, felt right for me, uh, I was beginning to seek to live chastely. And I remember going to uh, the local Barnes & Noble and looking for a book on chastity. And all the books that I could find were on teen purity. And <laughs> all written with the aim of, you know, writing to these teen virgins and trying to scare them into remaining virgins. (laughs) (laughs) It was so not what I needed to read at that, you know, moment, you know, being in my early 30s and really seeking that conversion of life. Right, yeah. After I had been uh, fairly serious about seeking to live uh, chastely for... um, for uh, more than a year, I was um, I was moved uh, through a, through a series of uh, 
of events uh, that I talk about uh, in my book, my piece I give you, and also I discuss a bit in The Thrill of the Chase, I was led uh, to become Catholic. And so as I was in RCIA preparing to enter the Catholic Church, I was actually approached by uh, Thomas Nelson, which was a Protestant publisher, and asked if I had any book ideas. And the book that came to me was to write the sort of book that I wished had been there for me when I was first trying to live chastely. So that's how the original edition of The Thrill of the Chaste came about. And by the time that came out in December 2006, I had just uh, entered the church that year. And then uh, in 2014, uh, I w was invited by Ave Maria Press, the publisher that published my second book, My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints. I was invited by Ave Maria Press to rewrite The Thrill of the Chaste in a Catholic edition, which was wonderful for me because since I had been living chastely as a Catholic, I was really amazed just at the idea that I could even have begun to live chastely without the helps of the sacraments and yeah. the same Catholic understanding. So in uh, January of 2015, the Catholic edition of The Thrill and the Chaste uh, came out, and I've been just really gratified to see how people responded to it. Yeah, I mean, um, like I told you before, it really made uh, an impact on me personally, um, because I know that I tend to see chastity only through, you know, well, this is these are the things that God is not giving me right now. And these are all the things that I'm depriving myself of. And the book really helped me change my perspective because you talk a lot about um, the good things that chastity brings you and the, the person that it really helps you become and how it helps you serve God more. And so I'm really grateful for that, honestly. <laughs> oh, well, praise God. I'm so glad to hear you say that. You know, you're not the only person who, you found that book somewhat uh, revelatory in terms of presenting a positive understanding of chastity. I've, over the course of the years since I began speaking on the thrill of the chaste, I've met many priests and religious uh, sisters and and brothers and others who have said something similar. And, you know, that amazed me because I thought to myself, well, you know, you're a priest or you're a sister and you should be a professional chaste person. Of course, yeah. <laughs> more about it than I do. And, you know, of course, they do know more about it than I do in many ways in terms of uh, living the vow. But um, for them, you know, I suppose sometimes, as can happen for lay people too, there can be a kind of dichotomy between, you know, the things that we do because they're commanded and the things that we do because... We want to do them. Right. And so what I tried to do with The Thrill of the Chase was to help people see how those things that we're commanded to do that are part of the Christian moral life, even if they're hard to do it at first, and virtue does you know, take, take effort, but I tried to help people see how these things can, in fact, become joyful and try to do that by showing them how I began to find joy in living these commandments. Yeah. And I think that's so important. I, I really do. I think you've definitely hit upon something that is not 
really talked about all that much. And there's really a very necessary conversation that needs to happen around that. So uh, thank Thank you. you. Um, And one of the things that you talk about that I really love was uh, your tomorrow principle. Um, Oh, yeah. When you were talking about, you know, being kind of on the verge of making a decision and you could go this way or you could go that way. Could you talk a little bit about the tomorrow principle? Sure. Well, I I talk about the tomorrow principle in the first chapter of The Thrill of the Chaste. uh, When I talk about an experience I had when I was first beginning to live chastely and when I was uh, going to a party at the home of a a young man whom I was interested in and the party was some distance from where I lived and I would have to take the subway and then another underground train to get back home at the end of the evening and the host uh, invited me to uh, stay over and so in order to say no I had to think about well what happens if I do this Mm -hmm. um what happens if I take him up on, on his invitation? And I played it in my head, you know, through, you know, not, not, so, much, not so much, you know, entertaining the lustful uh, thoughts. I was just playing it through in terms of what happens the morning after. Mm-hmm. And I imagined how would I feel about myself? How would I feel about him? Uh, and I realized that um, if he didn't love me, if this man didn't love me before I spent the night, he wouldn't love me anymore after. And even if he did, even if on some, you know, but by some, you know, Cupid's arrow, he suddenly <laughs> realized that he loved me. The fact would remain that when he invited me to spend the night, he was simply objectifying me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a great start for a relationship. You know, there's this hit song, I think from the seventies uh, that goes fooled around and fell in love. And, you know, that's not really romantic, you know, know, when you're married, you know, 50 years, you know, it's not really that great to think, you know, when I first met you, I just thought you were a nice looking piece of meat, but (laughs) you know, now we are so close to each other that we can clean up one another after using the bathroom and, you know, it's fine because we love each other, you know, no, Mm. if you're going to have that kind of that kind of love where you're willing to give yourself for the other, for the other person, you know, to the point of, you know, caring for someone when they're, when they're old, then, you know, that kind of love is not likely to begin with just looking at one another as a bit of fun. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's the same tomorrow principle as I talk about it in the book, it's the same principle that comes into play you know, when I diet, you know, the, uh, the cheese noodles look really good to me right now, but if I want to resist them, I have to think, well, do I want to fit into these jeans tomorrow? And, and, and so on, you know, that's really what virtue is. Virtue is about seeing how the thing that you forego today will actually enable you to be happier to tomorrow. Uh, so that you see happiness as a, continuum where you want to become happier over time and that if you um try to just have it all now then you'll find that that you've overdrawn your your accounts pretty quickly yeah exactly I mean I really just 
love that idea of looking beyond the present moment and also looking at the cumulative effect of your positive decisions to look to see who you want to be and what you want to have in your life and, you know, kind of see every decision as a step towards that. I think that's amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm really, I'm really glad to hear that. And, you know, even though I'm the author of the book, uh, it's not, you know, something that I've become any kind of, you know, expert on where I can, you know, forget that truth for myself. I mean, you know, even, even today, you know, at every, at every meal, I have to ask myself like, wow, somebody put out the Easter candy today, (laughs) even though it's not yet Easter, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, don't I want to reach for that right now? Um, and it's it's true in in other areas too. But I mean, this is part of the journey we're on. Um, for my, you know, I'm a doctoral student now, and what I'm what I've written about for my dissertation, which I'll be defending uh, very soon, is on redemptive suffering. How uh, how God gives us the opportunity to cooperate in the redemption that Jesus won for us. Uh, he, he, all the merit was on Jesus' part, but by this great grace uh, that St. Paul talks about uh, when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings because with them I fill up the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his church. Well, through this great grace, uh, we are given the opportunity to join our sufferings to those of Christ and so participate in the redemption of the, of the world. Um, and you know, part of that is in um, you know, any kind of um, effort that we expend in being virtuous. You know, that may not be suffering in the sense that Jesus' experience on the cross was suffering, but it's still something where we are able, through um, acting against our lower nature, to grow in our higher nature. And when we participate in virtue, we're growing in union with Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's very profound <laughs> and very beautiful, definitely. And it also, framing it that way really helps take some of the resentment away as well. Uh, thanks. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm inspired by something that Pope Benedict says at the end of the recent interview uh, of his that was published by Catholic News Agency. It's the interview where he speaks about justification and what it means and he speaks of the sacrament of uh, confession in terms of that if I have um, participated in evil in any way then I've sort of taken side aside with the with evil and that confession gives me the opportunity to remove myself from the domain of evil put myself in the domain of of goodness, you know. I think likewise with virtue. Um, when we uh, resist a temptation to sin, then we're taking ourselves further outside of the domain of sin and putting ourselves uh, on in the domain of of goodness. Wow! Yeah, totally. And yeah, I mean, it definitely makes it easier. I think to <laughs> resist in the future. Um, <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I, I yes, so. Right, right. But it's day by day. We take yeah. these things day by day. Um, so I really love the definition of chastity that you have in The Thrill of the Chaste. 
which is that chastity is the virtue that enables us to love fully and completely in every relationship in the manner that is appropriate to that relationship. And your friend Paraic Mar, is that Paraic Mar? Yeah, Mar um, is the one that uh, you attribute that quote to. Um, so how has that understanding of chastity shaped your choices and, um, also dealing with the hardships of living chastely? Well, I'm really glad that you like that definition. Uh, my friend Pork Meyer came up with that definition because, uh, he felt that, you know, as, as you and I were discussing earlier, that people so often think of chastity just as being a negative, just say no, exactly. don't have sex. And for Pork, he was at the time, a doctoral student in philosophy at Catholic University of America, and he was thinking that if chastity is a virtue, it can't be all about negativity, because virtues enable us to do things that we couldn't do without them. So that's where he came up with this definition of chastity as the virtue that enables us to live fully and completely in every relationship uh, according to uh, the type of relationship and, and, and our, our state in, in life. What that does is it gives me a sort of a perspective from which, as a single woman, I can think of chastity as a way of loving. Mm. Now, uh, the Catechism says that all the baptized are called to chastity. So, you know, we know right there that it can't mean that chastity is simply not having sex right. because we have to make more Catholic somehow. <laughs> right. So if chastity is the virtue that enables us to love fully and completely in every relationship according to the, the type of relationship and our, our state uh, in life, then for the married relationship, uh, then chast- to love fully and completely includes the marital act, sexual union, but it also includes fidelity, the gift of self, it, it includes loving in such a way that you're loving the person and not objectifying uh, your spouse. Um, all those things are part of chastity. And uh, for me as a single woman, to love fully and completely in every relationship according to the type of relationship and my state in life, well, my state in life is unmarried. So my way of living chastity will not include the marital act, but it will include loving fully and completely as a daughter, Mm. as a sister, as a friend, as a neighbor. And when I think of it that way, then uh, chastity uh, becomes an adventure. Then chastity becomes, you know, even something like one of the spiritual uh, acts of mercy is to bear the the difficult, you know. That becomes part of chastity. Mm. Uh, If someone is trying to tell me about something that's important to them and it's really not so important to me. Chastity involves thinking, how can I love this person by being present for this person, even though this person is going on in conversation longer than I would like them to. You know, mm-hmm. just yeah. you know, things like that. And that is related to chastity because it takes a virtue and it takes a virtue that is, that is a, a virtue of friendship. Um, and chastity is, you know, fundamentally about how to best be friends with a person in terms of uh, a gift of self. Mm. And so that's where, you know, it comes into play in marriage, too, because uh, in marriage, ultimately, um, even though 
it's different from other friendships in that you have the sexual union, uh, you also uh, have you know, fundamentally friendship with your spouse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's great because, well, yeah, everything that you said, I think is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I think chastity is kind of like the one of the forgotten virtues a little bit. And we forget that we are all called to chastity. And it just looks different according to our state in life. But again, I, I love the reframing of it as a positive and, and not all about the deprivation and uh, and how it really does have to do with what we everybody is called to do, which is love. Yes. You know. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so you're, you have a new book out now that it just came out, right? Or yes, that's right. Remembering God's Mercy, mm-hmm. Redeem the Past and Free Yourself from Painful Memories. It's brand new. Brand new. Yeah. I'm, and I'm so excited. I just finished mm-hmm. it. So excited to talk to you about it because it's also, I think, it will have the ability to speak to a lot of people. Um, oh, good. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to write that book? Sure. I, I'm so glad that you just read it and liked it. And I'm really eager to hear more about what you think. Uh, I came to write Remembering God's Mercy because after I wrote The Thrill of the Chaste, I uh, just decided to write, uh, for my first book since becoming a Catholic, I wrote, I wrote My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints. Uh, and I wrote that because uh, I myself uh, suffered sexual abuse as a child, and I found healing through the prayer and sacraments and life of the Church, and I particularly found healing through learning about the lives of saints who also suffered trauma and some of whom suffered sexual abuse and these uh, saints found healing through through Christ through their uh, union with Christ so I took the uh, what I had learned about healing and put it in my piece I give you healing sexual wounds with the help of the saints and that book I uh, did really well uh, the last I, I I checked it it sold more than 10,000 copies, uh, praise God. And it's, it's reached a lot of people who um, had not before been able to find any book on healing from sexual abuse that was written from a Catholic perspective. And many of these readers told me that they wanted a book like it that they could give to friends and family who perhaps did not suffer sexual abuse but had other kinds of wounds. Mm. So I... Um, I took their their responses into account, and then when Pope Francis was elected, and he gave his first interview, uh, that was the uh, interview that's been published under the title "A Big Heart Open to God." I noticed that he talked a lot about memory in that interview. He talked about how his prayer is a prayer full of memory, and I realized that if I were going to write the book that my readers wanted me to write a more general book on healing, uh, that it it would be ideal to be able to incorporate Francis' spirituality. And then that led me to looking at the spirituality of the Jesuits who inspired Francis, Mm -hmm. uh, including uh, Ignatius Loyola and St. Peter Faber. And so what I found was just a, a very rich spirituality that comes down to us from the Jesuits through Francis on healing of memory and and so that's what I 
we can put a cross in remembering God's mercy. Yeah, and it's a the perfect moment for it too, because Pope Francis also has declared this the year of mercy. It really is a perfect moment, and you know the funny thing is that I had actually written that that uh, the proposal for remembering God's mercy and sent it to my publisher, and I even worked on the first chapter before the year of mercy was announced. Oh, so awesome. once it was announced, it was really just a matter of inserting the word mercy into the title, <laughs> um, because uh, there are two dimensions to mercy. Uh, the first is the main dimension that we talk about in the year of mercy, which is healing from our own sins uh, through uh, through confession and, and th- through all the uh, graces that are given to us uh, from, from God through his church. And then the other side of mercy is the mercy that we receive that heals us. So basically there's the, the, mer- the mercy that we receive uh, for the uh, wounds that we've inflicted, and there's the mercy that we receive for the wounds that we've suffered. And it's all part of the same mercy. Mm. Uh, and so I thought that, the contribution that I could make in the year of mercy was to was to write this book for uh, those who are seeking the mercy for wounds suffered. Yeah, and I really love that you have opened it up to all wounds. Um, mm-hmm. That I think really everybody will be able to find something that they relate to here um, because you know everybody has done things that they regret to others and mm-hmm. also, you know, been wounded by others. And I really also loved uh, how practical it was. You, you give a lot of very mm-hmm. practical advice about ways that you can pray and the ways that you can apply God's mercy to, or invite God's mercy in, I guess, to your memory and to healing your wounds. Thank you. I'm really glad that you found it practical. I, I tried to make it as practical as I could. It's really, um, it, it, the approach that I took to it is different from my other books in many ways. Uh, first of all, it's a shorter book mm. because I found that uh, when you're giving a book to someone who's hurting, if it's a long book, then they just look at it as, oh, here's another thing that I'm never going to get around to doing and <laughs> I'm going to point, you know, the person who's given me this book by not being able to read the whole thing. So I thought, okay, I'm going to forestall that by making this book, you know, just uh, 125 pages plus notes. Uh, And then uh, with regard to the language of the book, my previous books were written for a college-level audience. And what I found when I went out to parishes is that there are many people in parishes uh, who have just a high school level education and I needed to reach them too and uh, many of my favorite writers are writers who were able to write for the widest possible audience like C.S. Lewis E.K. Chesterton uh, Chesterton you know some of his theological writings are, are pretty heavy but he's also got the Father Brown stories mm-hmm. and other things which, which you, know, you don't have to have a, a college education to read and appreciate and also Fulton Sheen, who was able to write, uh, to write newspaper columns and also write for every man. So I tried to more take that voice with remembering God's mercy. And 
and include as much practical advice as possible. So I'm, I'm really glad that that came through for you. Yeah, for sure. Like one of the things that you talk about that I had never heard of before um, was this Ajere Contra. Um, Ajere Contra, yes. Ajere Contra, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. Ajere Contra is uh, a phrase used by St. Ignatius Loyola in his spiritual exercises. It refers to acting against or to, to act against. And uh, the idea is that uh, if we uh, experience a, uh, a temptation, that the best way to counter it is to act directly against it. So like I used the example before of, of if I'm um, in conversation with someone and this person is talking about something that really doesn't interest me and, you know, I realize it would be a spiritual work of mercy if I, if I bore with that person longer than I would normally like to. Well, then, you know, the idea is to recognize, okay, I have a temptation to say to this person, well, I've really got to get going, see you. <laughs> but if I act directly uh, against that, that temptation and stay with that person longer than I normally would, that I'll receive grace from that, and the other person hopefully will too. And, you know, we can apply this also with, um, with things that we're uh, afraid of or uh, with things that, that, might, uh, that might cause us pain. Um, for, for example, um, if I'm, and this is actually the example that St. Ignatius Loyola uses in his spiritual exercises, uh, if I'm having trouble praying, if I'm before the Blessed Sacrament, uh, you know, praying before the tabernacle, and I've got all these distractions, um, I'm sleepy, uh, and it's just not doing anything for me. What St. Ignatius Loyola says, I mean, these are his exact words, he says, if a person is having difficulty uh, praying before the Blessed Sacrament for an hour, then he or she should pray before the Blessed Sacrament for an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> because in this way, the person will merit and will really counter uh, the the enemy. Um, and, you know, that's been so helpful for me per personally. And as I write in Remembering God's Mercy, you know, the idea is you look at what your problem is, you look at what you can't change, and you look at what you can change. So, like, my problem is, is I can't stay focused um, while I'm praying before the Blessed Sacrament. Um, I mean, I'm just saying as an example. So if that's my, if that's my problem... Well, perhaps I can't change having uh, difficulty focusing on the Blessed Sacrament. The one thing I have control over is how much time I actually try to pray before the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. And so I'm going to go for that one thing that I can control and stay before the Blessed Sacrament longer because it's better to try and fail than to not try at all. Mm. And when we take that attitude, I mean, this goes to... That wonderful saying that you probably know from Chesterton, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Exactly. <laughs> Chesterton was criticized for that. Um, people still criticize him for it, but there, there's a profound truth in it because if we think that we can't ascend in the moral life unless we're already these perfect saints, 
then we'll just stay down in the dust and never ascend. It's when we figure, okay, well, I'm not like one of the great saints or mystics, but I'm just going to, to plod on and try to do the things that they did. That's when we grow. Yeah. And I love it because it, it does put the focus on, well, it, first of all, it does highlight that we have control because so yeah. often we see ourselves as victims of yeah. our circumstances or of our temptations. Right. And so I, that's the first thing that really jumped out at me was it reinforcing the idea, like, no, we do have <laughs> choices that we can make and we can be proactive um, and we don't always have to give in to these temptations, big or small, um, that That's there is right. something that we can kind of fight back with. <laughs> yes. So I was curious, I, I really love your prayer example, and I can really relate to that. Um, but do you have any ideas for how one could apply that with like sexual temptations or lust? Oh sure, with 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 Audrey Contra, um, mm-hmm. you know, for me, if I'm with someone to whom I, if I'm with a man to whom I feel attraction, and it's not someone from whom I can, you know, simply flee. You know, sometimes fleeing is a great way to to avoid uh, temptation. We shouldn't uh, <laughs> not flee. But if it's really, like, if it's someone I work with or someone who's a neighbor or schoolmate uh, and it wouldn't be right for me to just run out the door every time this this man, you know, walks through, then for me, Audrey Conchwell becomes thinking in, ter- in terms of how can I see this man as my brother in Christ? Mm. Um, how can I treat him as though I were his sister? If I were his sister... You know, I wouldn't dare be, you know, fantasizing about him um, or, or, you know, allowing myself to entertain any lustful thoughts. So, so how, how can I uh, think that the sister would think? Uh, and when I do that, that's acting against my temptation to objectify this man. And, you know, even if I'm not completely successful I merit from the battle. That's in the catechism where the catechism talks about concupiscence and it says that concupiscence, that's the tinder of, uh, uh, or it's, it's related to the tinder of, of, of sin. It's um, con- concupiscence is the um, tendency that we have to seek our own desire over what's genuinely, uh, or our fleshly desire over what's genuinely spiritually good good for us mm. uh, well the catechism says that that concupiscence is not washed away in baptism because god wants to enable us to merit by fighting it mm. and so if i'm fighting concupiscence by actively trying to to think of this man as i would think of of uh, a, a brother then i merit even through the fight Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's really beautiful. I thank you for that. So, uh, you talk so beautifully in remembering God's mercy about coming to a deeper relationship with Christ and how connecting with his woundedness has helped you heal your own memories. So could you just elaborate a little bit more on that and how your relationship with Christ has deepened through this journey? 
Thank you. I'm really glad that you found the way I described that in, in Remembering God's Mercy beautiful. Uh, for me, you know, the journey of healing is a journey that in many ways takes a lifetime, but there's grace in the journey. Uh, people will come up to me from time to time, people who are really hurting, like people who suffer trauma and have post-traumatic stress disorder, and they'll ask me, like, do you ever get healed? Do you ever get cured? And I can understand the desire to, to ask that, but I think that we're, that's not quite the right way to frame it. Because the whole purpose of life, the reason why we have a full lifespan rather than just, you know, being born and living one second and immediately going to heaven, the reason we have a whole lifespan is so that we can grow in the love of God so that when we do meet him in heaven, we will have the greatest possible capacity to be filled with his love. This is something that St. Therese of Lisieux speaks about so beautifully in the story of the soul. And in Remembering God's Mercy, I talk about how uh, St. Augustine uh, speaks of how we grow in love of God through having our heart stretched. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that we have our heart stretched is through, it, it, we, our heart becomes enlarged through the experience of suffering. This doesn't mean that suffering is in and of itself good, but it means that Christ has baptized suffering with his blood, and he's enabled us to unite our suffering to his so that when we experience pain, our own pain is, is suffused with the, the grace of the risen Lord. Uh, this is what I speak about in, in uh, Removing God's Mercy, where I use that uh, quote from Father Daniel A. Lord, who says that uh, the uh, entire Christian life should be, should be uh, imbued with the colors of the Easter sunrise. Mm. Uh, so, you know, healing does come. It does get better. I'm in a far, far better place now uh, than I was when I began on my journey. And even the effects of post-traumatic stress uh, become um, less difficult to manage over time you know, with the help of uh, a good uh, therapist, with the help of a good spiritual director, with the help of the sacraments. So I'm not saying it doesn't get better. It gets much better. But I'm saying that there's grace in the slowness of the healing uh, because... Our nature is good, and it's fallen, but the fall didn't take away the essential goodness of our nature. Mm. And our nature is a nature that grows and develops over time. Time, um, as Peter Faber said, uh, St. Peter Faber, whom Pope Francis canonized, time is God's messenger, and God will speak to us through the events of our lives and through the ways that our memories and understanding of his grace operating in our lives uh, develops. And, uh, you know, that's, that awareness is what I seek to build in readers uh, through remembering God's mercy. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really powerful of uh, the way you talk about being able to change your perspective on your past and, you know, being able to not just look at the events that happened or, the hurt that somebody inflicted on you, but also looking at how God was loving you throughout your entire past. 
and using that to kind of transform also your perspective on the present and your relationship yeah. with God. Yes, that's, that's right. Thank you. I'm, I'm really glad that that, that resonated uh, with you. Um, one thing that is a kind of undercurrent in remembering God's mercy uh, is something that I'm sort of, it's an idea that I'm agitating against, which is this idea that in order to be healed, we have to relive every memory and invite Jesus in. Mm. That's the mindset of uh, people who practice what they call inner healing or theophrastic prayer. And I'm not saying that the people who practice this aren't uh, good people who sincerely want to help others heal. They are, and very often they're working in conjunction with their bishops and they're obedient to the church, and I, I applaud them for that. What I am saying is that in my own experience, having uh, having complex post-traumatic stress disorder, that approach doesn't work for me because with complex PTSD, you haven't just had one traumatic experience. You've had many traumatic experiences. And so like, the problem for me is that if I try to relive one event, then that one memory is tangled with other memories and other memories and other memories. Mm. And so if I were in some inner healing group and I was going there one week and having one memory healed, uh, you know, I can just imagine I'd leave the group, you know, feeling on a high and then have to go back the next week and like, ah, found mm. another memory. Yeah. And I hear yeah. stories of people who have been through this and it's been painful for them. So what I try to do in remembering God's mercy is present a way of healing that's an alternative that's worked very well for me, which is, as you say, focusing on where God is in the present moment, focusing on my present longing for God, and with that longing, then realizing that all the events of my past have worked towards this present longing for God, that God must have, from the before the beginning of time, God wanted me to have this moment of longing for him, and he's ordained the events of my life so that I might become aware of this God-shaped vacuum in my heart. It doesn't mean that the evils in my past were good, but it means that God only permitted the evils because he knew that they would lead towards this moment of my making space for him in my heart. And that for me is where the healing really uh, comes. Yeah. I, I, th I think that that's really, really beautiful and a very healthy way at, <laughs> at looking at um, these, a painful past. Um, and yeah, uh, because these issues, like you said, they're, they're just so complex. And, uh, and I, I really do love the emphasis that you put on, um, needing a spiritual component when you go into these kinds of memories. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's right. And, you know, I do think that when painful memories come up, it is important to always offer them, uh, offer them to, to God. Uh, immediately, um, but I think that uh, really Ignatian prayer, Ignatian prayer is not about um, digging up the mysteries of your own life. It's about inserting yourself into the mysteries of Christ's life, mm -hmm. and it's also about allowing God to use your imagination in such a way that you trust that 
if something does come up, if a memory does come up, that it only comes up because God's permitted it to come up at this moment. And if he's permitted it, it's because he intends for you to merit by it. Mm. And, and you can merit by it through immediately offering it to him and offering it in union with the corresponding mystery of his life. So, you know, if it's a memory of being abandoned, you can unite that to the memory of Jesus being abandoned by by all his uh, disciples, uh, or almost all, when he was crucified. Mm-hmm. If it's a memory of being betrayed, you can unite that to Jesus' own memory, which is still carries of being betrayed by Judas. When we do that, we become united to God's own memories through Christ. And Jesus' memories, unlike mine, don't end with you know, my present pain, Jesus' memories are complete in his risen life. So if I'm united to his memories, then I'm receiving the grace of his resurrection that will bring me closer to my own life in him. Mm. Yeah, that's a very powerful way to uh, become a better follower of Christ. Definitely. Um Well, thank you so much for both writing these books and for talking us today, <laughs> talking to us. <laughs> Is there any last parting words you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, just uh, to invite listeners to uh, visit my blog, The Dawn Patrol, which is at dawneden.blogspot.com. That's D-A-W-N-E-D-E-N.blogspot.com. And to uh, visit me on Twitter. I hate to say follow me on Twitter because that sounds like a guru. <laughs> visit me on Twitter at Dawn of Mercy. And uh, my books, uh, Remembering God's Mercy, My Peace I Give You, and The Thrill of the Chaste Catholic Edition uh, can be found wherever Catholic books are sold. Great. And um, for our Protestant listeners, they can still get The Thrill of the Chaste non-Catholic edition? Uh, they can, although I've actually heard from Protestant readers that they like the Catholic edition better. Oh, interesting. Uh, I think it is possible to read that and just, you know, kind of gloss over the parts where I mentioned the Eucharist. <laughs> when I speak about saints and about Mary in the Catholic edition, I'm not speaking of them in terms of, like, therefore you need to venerate this saint. I'm speaking of them more in terms of the stories of their lives, and Protestants have told me that they appreciate stories of heroic virtue. So I I think the the Catholic edition of The Thrill of the Chaste works for them, too. Oh, great. Okay. That's wonderful. Well, we will definitely also post your information uh, to our Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and I encourage everyone to go out and read these books. Great. Well, thank you so much for contacting me and for a wonderful interview and for all that you're doing for the new evangelization. I think that, that your podcast is very important in that regard. And it sounds like you've got some wonderful shows lined up too. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much, Don. (laughs) So I really love basically everything that she says. (laughs) <laughs> well, you had the pleasure of actually reading both her books. I read the Cliff Note versions, or I should say the Mary Ashley version yeah. <laughs> of all your notes. But I thought everything that you, we've talked about, at least, when you were recapping these books to me, I was like, yes, yes, totally. I yeah. think everything that she says is brilliant. Uh, didn't she just get 
a degree. In the interview, she mentioned that she was going to defend her dissertation. And I am pleased to say that she successfully defended it. And she actually is the first woman to receive a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Mundelein Seminary, which means... So the abbreviation for the doctorate in sacred theology is STD. So great. So she's the first woman to get the STD from the seminary. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's a big accomplishment. I just kind of want to change gears here and introduce a very special guest in the studio with us, Derek Sams. You guys all heard a little bit about him <laughs> last week on the podcast at the end. Um... He has actually a little amendment to my story about how him and I. Oh no! It was just it was a little detail, and I think your version of the story probably you were a little harsh on yourself. I think (laughs) because it wasn't when we did have our talk after we'd gone out. It was actually a few days later. Our first date, right? On Star Wars Day. On Star Wars Day, May the fourth, twenty thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. So in in the episode last week, I said that. It was that same day, that same night after you dropped me off yeah. that we had the talk of we're going to be just friends. Mm-hmm. But apparently I was wrong. Right, because I had picked you up that day yes. for the date. And then this was a few days later. I don't remember what we were doing, but I remember you I'm were— I'm telling you, we, we were, were in watching your car. Jurassic Park. Okay. okay. Was it that same day? <laughs> okay. So I just want to say okay. for listeners, Lara just pulled out an envelope full of ticket stubs. Okay, so I am yeah, this, super okay, sentimental and sappy with certain things. Mm-hmm. And I write— I, I say this ticket stubs of everything, of every movie I've ever watched in the last 10, 15 years. And on the back, I always write down who I saw that movie with. It's just one of those things that I do. And so here's the ticket from May the 4th, 2013. We saw Iron Man 3. For in our, 3D. In yeah. 3D on <laughs> yeah. our dates. Then there's this ticket stub for a few days later for Jurassic Park in 3D. <laughs> 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 awesome. And this has your name on the back. So I feel yeah, like so, it was that night okay. where at the end of that, it wasn't a date per se, it was hanging out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that time it was hanging out. Uh, but, but, but you, d- I think you all deliberately hung out together because I remember there's another group. I went to see it with another group of our mutual friends. Yeah, and I was like, okay. oh, are Derek and Laura coming? And they were like, oh, no, they're hanging out together. Yeah. Oh. And I, I, think it, I think at that point I knew... Uh-huh. That I was, I was trying to be a gentleman, and just <laughs> at, at that point, say, okay, like I like hanging out with you, but I think mm-hmm. at this point we are going to stay friends. So, anyway, that's a little detail that I wanted to make sure our listeners for the knew. record, because <laughs> I and, feel yeah. so much more dramatic. Like it was the same day we decided. Well, it's more cinematic that way in the movie version of your lives. Okay, that's, that's probably true. what. Yeah, uh, <laughs> producer, but. Um, Derek, I just wanted to ask you kind of your side of that story and, you know, how long had you liked her and then how did you make the decision to finally ask her out? Uh, I'm not sure how long it was. I'd had a growing interest uh, for a while. I remember, actually, I don't remember when we first met. So it was definitely summer of 2012 sometime during Mm -hmm. Act 1. Yeah, it was during the um, end of the year or end of the summer reception Mm -hmm. Barbecue, the pool house. Mm, okay. The pool house. Do you remember that? I think so. Yeah. And I remember, yeah. like, having this minor crush on him, thinking, like, <laughs> oh, he's really cute. <laughs> That's funny. I, well, I remember, like, as I was getting to know you, realizing, okay, here's this girl who's just really smart and really confident. And we were in the same small group we'd go to, and she'd have, like, all this great insight with whatever scripture we were discussing. <laughs> and besides being just pretty, you know, mm-hmm. all those things were really attractive, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? 
But I remember, and of course, in Laura's version, you're very gentlemanly and proactive, which you were by calling her and asking her out on a date. Eventually. (laughs) Eventually. But see, I remember because we were friends that you really did struggle with it. And you had this, a lot of the same doubts and struggles that we've been hearing um, in response to our podcast or not even in response also before we even released um, of the concerns that guys have. And so I remember specifically that you were like, yeah, there's this girl at church that I really want to ask out, but I don't know. I mean, there's so much pressure for the future and, um, (laughs) You know, we're in. I don't want to ruin our friendship. We're in this really tight circle of friends because you all Mm -hmm. have a lot of mutual friends in common. You go to church together, and so I remember saying, (laughs) "Most women will go on a date, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. a date." If you say, "Let's go on a date," most women, I think it's maybe a well kept secret. I don't know. Most women will say yes. And then you can evaluate, and there doesn't need to be all this pressure. And then it was like a week later, someone was like, oh, Derek asked Lara. <laughs> and I was like, that's who it was. Uh, okay, uh, mystery I was wondering solved. if you had figured it out. <laughs> um, I mean, by now, I know you did. <laughs> but what's funny is, like, even though things didn't work out then, it really didn't ruin the friendship. Yeah. Do you know no, what I mean? That's that, a good that was point. Great. Like, yeah. we went out once, and we talked, and it, you know, it wasn't happening. But we stayed friends. Right. We were... And because you had that clear communication, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I'm glad that, you know, in retrospect, obviously, you see everything 2020, but Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to be, have that talk sooner than later, because I knew, like, after that first date, like, obviously, you're a really great guy, and for whatever reason, whatever the timing was in my life, I just, just was not in that place, and uh, again, I was crazy, let you go but it worked Aww. out in the end it worked out in the end uh, but I, th- I think the other thing about why our friendship just stayed intact like three years later still was the fact that we were so intentional about on that first date like not being physical mm. I feel like there's so many first dates that just end up like yeah. oh and then we ended up making out and I'm like wait are you what are you dating for serious yeah. like however what I really admire about Derek is that he has this whole thing about, like, chastity being very important. As, you know, we, we cherish this as well, but I wanted to bring a male voice into the conversation because what of a lot of our feedback from last week were coming from men. And I'd like to... Yeah, we're actually getting, I think, more comments from men than women, which is which kind is of crazy. It's, yeah, great. Uh, but because men are actually listening to this? That's awesome. <laughs> but I didn't expect it at all. You know, I, I figured that our audience would be people just like us, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people that have been more vocal about telling us their thoughts and their ideas. Which is awesome. Been men. Yeah, I love it. And yeah. Men, send us your thoughts, yes. please. When men do think about this stuff, and so often the outlets for discussing relationships are geared toward women, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas... I don't know, it's almost like men have a stigma where they maybe feel like they can't talk about relationships or something. And mm, I think Christian men yeah. especially, if they're trying to approach relationships in this way, it's a little, it helps to have some venue where you can express that or somebody that you mm-hmm. can share that with. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. We're all for men and women, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I, I, to the topic at hand, just talking about chastity, can you tell us briefly a little bit about your background, contextualize who you are so that uh, for the people listening, they know that who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I am, um, I come from a fairly conservative Christian background. I grew up in West Virginia. My dad was a pastor for most of my youth. Um, I 
came from a family where, let's see, I had a couple of uncles who had also been pastors. My grandfather on my mother's side was a pastor before he retired. Um, and our parents always had us in Christian school. So I grew up around a lot of Christian teaching. And, you know, there are, of course, tons of Bibles in the house. We were always taught a lot of things that are common to the conservative evangelical church. And, um, yeah, like when my dad did have any kind of talk with mm. us, like that was definitely an important point was, you know, that God intended sex for marriage. But I mean, that was just in the same way that most people, I guess, these days when their parents have a talk with them, if they do, they've already figured out a lot of it <laughs> for us. Like, the idea of sex being for marriage was also kind of a given in our house just because of the examples we had. And I am really thankful for that. Mm. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm particularly special. It doesn't mean that I've, that I've lived a perfect life or anything. Um, I mean, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, you know, purity is a whole lot more than just not having sex, mm -hmm. but by God's grace, I haven't. <laughs> so, um, I am thankful to at least be able to say that. And again, it, it is God's grace and not some special thing in my life. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on chastity, your stance on chastity? I remember us having this talk when we were <laughs> <laughs> getting together mm -hmm. and we made a conscientious choice to mm -hmm. not actually like even kiss right away. Yeah. We still haven't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I'm sure that's like weird for people to hear, but uh, yeah, like I think you also like emphasized that you wanted to be careful, take things slow. Mm -hmm, yeah, absolutely. and I said, I mean, even with just kissing, and I was, and I said, I do kind of, I actually agree with you. I think that's a good idea. And do you remember the <laughs> the principle that I brought up? This, uh, I do. Yeah, if you've ever seen the movie First Night. Um, Lancelot, this is so cheesy, but Lancelot tells Guinevere, like, he promises not to kiss her until she asks him. <laughs> uh -huh. It was one of the things I endeared. I was like, oh, uh -huh. he watches First Night. I love it. I haven't seen it in forever, but I, I, so I do kind of love my sappy 90s love stories. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is why we're together. Where were we? What were so we talking anyway, about? <laughs> so, um, going back to Chastity, what is your dialogue like with other men about mm -hmm. this? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of friends that I have who don't come from the same background or even who um, are believers who don't believe the same way about chastity. Um, it, it takes a little while before this kind of thing comes up because I don't just go around with a sign talking about it all the time. <laughs> uh, but often when it does, people are respectful. You know, I mean, when you get guys together, guys will very often want to talk about women or rather talk about women's bodies or what, you know, what they like to do. Um, yeah, anyway. But I remember being in a setting once... Uh, with the army, like uh, in AIT, which is the training that you do right after basic to learn your specific job. I was with a bunch of guys. We were in our tent that we were staying in for um, our field exercise at the end of the course. And there were like get to know you questions that were just stupid things. And then some stuff talking about, I don't remember what they were talking about exactly, but there was something sexual to the question that went around. And I was like, well, actually, uh, yeah, I don't have a story because <laughs> yeah, um, which was the funny thing was I didn't get made fun of or anything. The guys were all just kind of like, huh, <laughs> interesting. That's actually pretty cool. Um, yeah, they were pretty respectful about it. And most of my friends, um, who don't believe the same way or who live differently are usually, are usually pretty cool about it. Mm. Um, and it's not something we dwell on. It's mm -hmm. just kind of there because, um, 
I think if you give other people the kind of love and respect that you want, they're going to give it back most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I certainly, they know that they might know that I disagree with them, but I try not to come out as really condemning or anything like mm-hmm. that. Cause if someone doesn't believe the same way, they're not going to live the same way. Um, and usually that's the same kind of respect comes back. Um, so, um, you talked about your background, uh, but obviously you don't live in rural West Virginia anymore no. <laughs> with your family. Have you had to um, maybe come to a different understanding of chastity uh, or ha- maybe have more intellectual reasons for it um, in your journey with it? Um, because, or, or has, you know, just like, well, the Bible says this and my family is mm-hmm. conservative. Is that enough? Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think... I don't think just saying my family has taught me this is ever enough for any beliefs that we carry. Yeah. Um, like, you know, as a Christian, of course I look to the Bible as the foundation and whatever understanding we glean from what God's presented there. And, you know, you can talk about natural revelation too. And just um, knowing certain things about just the way things work, you can kind of monitor things and kind of learn what's wise in addition to what might be moral. Mm-hmm. And, um, Yeah, and it's hard for me to point to a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not have sex before thou art married, Mm -hmm. you know, but you do see examples. You see principles like um, with Adam and Eve, God said, and therefore, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus quoted that. Yeah, Jesus quoted that. So there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. When it addresses things like marriage, it's kind of put in this context where it's almost a given that sex is only for marriage. In those words. And I'm sure, you know, people might comment on this podcast and disagree with me. And if I have other arguments, I'm not a great theologian. My brother is. Mm-hmm. Um, he can probably correct me if I get things wrong on here, too. But you can also look and see throughout the Bible. I've never seen an example where someone had sex outside of marriage and everything worked out okay. I mean, ultimately, God still provided and got them through it. But um, over and over again, when people do that, it's it's there and you see it as a mistake, mm-hmm. you know. Um So looking at that has kind of helped solidify things for me because once you get out of your parents' house, your faith has to become your own or it's going to just change. Um, And as we become adults, that's, we kind of form our own beliefs based on what our parents taught us or going in a different direction. Um, For me though, uh, when I look at scripture there, I can see reasons to continue to pursue the same thing. And also just for practical reasons, Um, because I don't have sex all the time or ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't have to I worry. Hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to worry about, um, having, you know, children somewhere that I don't know about. I don't have to worry about having, um, STDs, you know, um, unless it's a degree, unless it's a degree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it does. And like, just knowing that is really helpful. Um, when we talk about chastity, I know we were talking about a lot of the reasons why, but as far as the how, I think, um, it's not so much a focus on trying to remain chaste, but trying to be truly monogamous. Mm. Um, And I was, I love that. Yeah. And so easy to look around us and see what everybody else is doing and Mm. wish that we had, we could enjoy the same stuff. Mm. It's easy to look inside at our desires and, and everything. But I think it's not so much looking outward and inward as it is looking forward. And of course, looking upward, Mm -hmm. like looking to God to satisfy our our deepest needs and looking forward to, um, what we want to bring into a relationship, an actual lasting monogamous marriage relationship. And for me, when I, anytime that I've dealt with like 
and are the temptation are wondering, okay, God, when is, when are things actually going to work out for me to actually find someone? Um, I've looked at, you know, my parents or my brother or and his wife or my grandparents and seen how their relationships have worked by li- living this lifestyle and thinking, you know what, it's going to be okay. Mm. <laughs> when I was at uh, DLI, which is another army school that I went to, we'd have a safety brief each Friday morning at our formation and we'd have to all cover like whatever platoon was in charge of the safety brief. You'd have somebody covering each topic and it's the same information every time, but it's like things like outdoor safety. If you're going anywhere, you know, things like not drinking and driving, um, covering all the basics just to make sure people don't do stupid things during the weekend. And one of them is sexual health. And so I just volunteered to do that. that (laughs) Yeah. So I, I got up there and told everybody, you know, I believe in waiting for marriage. I don't expect everyone here to agree with me, but, um, I do, I do think, you know, you're all in the military, you can be disciplined, you can be responsible. And I told them basically, um, if you get into a scenario where things are going in that direction and you realize, oh, this person's a little bit drunk, this might be a mistake. Or you think, oh, I forgot to grab one of those readily available condoms on post. Curse my ineptitude. <laughs> um, then it might be time to back off and wait. And I said, uh, take it from someone with a lot of experience not having sex. A weekend without it won't kill you. <laughs> and if you're using words like ineptitude, you're probably not getting any anyway. <laughs> And the way people responded, like, it was, they laughed. My first sergeant came up and gave me a fist bump, and, you know, everybody enjoyed it. It was high fives and stuff all around. But um, going again to, like, where the uh, conversation goes with that, people afterwards, like, I never heard anybody say anything negative. It was all just positive um, positive reinforcement saying, hey, that's really cool. I respect that. And there were, other, of course, other Christians there, um, a number of Mormons who believed the same way, um, who felt the same way about sex. And then I did talk to one guy who was like, you know, I thought that way, but I messed up before, you know, and my reaction was like, no, you can't change the past. But I wish I thought to tell him as like, you still can control the future, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting the kind of acceptance you can still get, even though a big part of your life can be so different mm-hmm. to somebody else's. Yeah, and I, I love all of that, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, but I, I do want to point mm-hmm. out that you know, this is obviously a very specific example of a, a specific way of life. And not everybody, like Derek just said, like not everyone is going to adhere to these principles or adhere to even a belief of belief in God in the same way or the Bible. Um, but again, as we posited last week in our first episode, you know, we're not coming to this to the, the table with the same experiences Um However, we can all learn from each other. We can all share stories and we can all be here in a non-judgmental space and to know that we're all trying to ultimately figure it out together. Um, I love that you were able to share a little bit of who you are and your conviction. And if, if nothing else, for you who have, as you just said with your friend who said, like, uh, I used to think that, but now, or I used to not think that way, but now I want to again or whatever, you know, if you are a Christian growing up in this way and you've, you know, messed up or whatever, you know, like there's still grace on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. And I just want to encourage people that it is possible. The three of us uh, are all trying to live celibate lives, but we understand that our, all of our audience is not going to necessarily feel that way mm-hmm. or be convicted in that way. And we still want to be in the dialogue with you because we feel like this is such a part of culture, chastity, as well as sex, as well as all the things in between. 
um, are affecting all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike. And I just want us to be able to speak on those things in a way that lets people know, you know, there are people hearing your story. There are people that are living your story and you're not alone. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'd love to, um, for all of us to read Psalm 103. Yeah, so Don uh, recommends in Remembering God's Mercy as one of the things you can do. As we said in the interview, she has so many just practical tips for prayer. Um, but one thing is to pray Psalm 103 every day. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord does righteous deeds, brings justice to all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, to the Israelites his deeds. Merciful and gracious is the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always accuse and nurses no lasting anger. He has not dealt with us as our sins merit, nor requited us as our wrongs deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has set his throne in heaven. His dominion extends over all. Bless the Lord, all you his angels, mighty in strength, acting at his behest, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, his ministers who carry out his will. Bless the Lord, all his creatures, everywhere in his domain. Bless the Lord, my soul. Psalm 103. Amen. Awesome. All right. So all you Fishers of Men podcast listeners, we like to end our podcasts with uh, real life dating moments. And uh, for those who didn't see our posts, we'd love to share your real life dating moment. If you want to send a clip, a two minute clip to Fishers of Men podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to play that for uh, the audiences that are listening. Um, but for now, I guess we're just going to stick to our own. Well, I have one that Laura told me to share. Um, <laughs> so I am basically at this point in my life only on uh, online dating apps for the entertainment value um, because it's <laughs> for research. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but I haven't gone on an online dating date in a really long time because I'm just kind of over it. I, I don't know. I feel like there there have been. In my experience, a lot of differences between what people put in their profiles and then the person they actually are. And But my profiles are still active just because I find some of the messages really outrageous, but also amusing. Like, mm. I can't believe that this is how people believe we should be communicating between humans. So, But every once in a while, I get in this, like, desperate state where I'm just, like, so sick of the guy that I like is, who's not asking me out and, like, sick of this 
dating date non date thing and like you know did he what did he mean by that and you know he said this but he didn't say that and like it's just ugh. so sometimes I want to take matters into my own hands mm. and on those desperate lonely nights is when I start sending messages out on online dating apps. <laughs> But it never works out. Has has never worked out to this day. Even in real life, whenever I've made a move, like whenever I've made the first move, it just has never worked out for me. Hmm. Um, but anyway, so there's this one guy I messaged first. What what's the app? What's the dating app? This is OK Cupid. Okay. Okay. And in his profile, he said that he was a ruggedly handsome nerd. <laughs> Which I okay. mean, so I yeah. messaged him to say, "Ruggedly handsome nerd is the perfect combo." Yeah, because okay. I mean, it is. <laughs> So he messaged me back almost right away and said, thanks, smiley face emoji. My name's Carlos. And I said, I'm Mary Ashley. Then nothing. And a month later to the day. Wow. He had like it in his phone, maybe like planned. <laughs> I, I don't know. But but a month later to the day, which was this past Wednesday, he messages me and says, we should hang out sometime to see if we click. Text me if you'd like. Would love to hear from you. And he gave me his number. And has since disabled his account, so I guess he was, I guess maybe he was like just going through everybody and giving his number out until he got off of Cupid or whatever. But I was like, I'm not gonna text you. Yeah. It's, it's like Don't first do of it. all, you waited an entire month. Yeah. And second of all, you said, Oh, you know, that's like the least gentlemanly thing. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, Does oh, OKCupid have like a month long free trial and maybe that was in No, it's always like, free. Okay. Oh, okay. It's free wow. all the time. Okay. Hmm. Well, I don't know. <laughs> This is not a plug for Okay Cupid. Yeah, so it's like he, not putting down Okay Cupid because it's either good nor bad. Right? No. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm not knocking online dating. I know a lot right. of people who have met their spouses on online oh, dating. Oh, totally. So. Oh, yeah. Me yeah. Too. Well, I shared my hopeful story last year and last year last week. <laughs> right. And uh, Derek is actually in the studio, so maybe I'll I'll tell a horror story so that we, he can shine as like actually being <laughs> the knight in shining armor. No, but I, I was dating this guy, and we uh, were hanging out in my apartment, and, like, both of us were like, ah, oh, you know what sounds really, really good right now? Some beer. And I just, like, put it off. I was like, ah, well, then we're going to have to go drive. I didn't have any. And then uh, a little bit later, he, he, like, brings it up, and he's like, you know, it, we should go get some beer. I'm like, all right, if you want to. And then I offered to drive. And then we went down the street. And then um, once we got to the parking lot, it was a small space because it's L.A., and we couldn't find parking. I was like, why don't I just stay here? You run in and go get it. And then um, he, like, does this, like, faux, like, checking his pockets. Like, oh, you know what? I left my wallet. Oh, and you think I, he was totally faking it? Yeah. And I was just like, okay, you wanted to go get the beer ultimately. I know I suggested yeah. but he's the one that, like, brought it up again. Like, we should really go. And then, I mean, I, I don't care. Like, I can pay for stuff. But it, it was just that whole thing that... Really, you're going to not bring your wallet when you want to go get mm. beer? Okay, you were expecting me to pay? I don't know. Mm. But anyway, so that was my wah, wah, yeah. moment. But anyway, Derek has never done that. Uh, that you know of. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just better at faking it. No. Uh, no, let's see. I was actually thinking I might share a story from just a few months ago. Um, before we actually started going out. But it was when things were starting to look like it might be a possibility between you and me mm. again. I remember trying to figure out if I actually could ask you out yet and trying to <laughs> like trying to just read things the right way and make sure I wasn't reading too much into it. Mm-hmm. But um or that maybe, you know, you weren't just a friend who was being extra friendly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I remember talking to my brother about it and telling him kind of where things were and describing 
everything, like the stuff we had done together, mm-hmm. um, like the accidental date we'd been on and other stuff that, where we'd hung mm-hmm. out. But um, then I asked him, you know, would it, what he thought. And I deep down, I knew it's a good idea to go ahead and take the chance. Mm. But he told me, okay, men and women are not meant to just be friends with each other. Because mm. eventually, if you don't marry each other, one of you is going to marry somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not going to last. So, it always has last. an expiration date. Yeah. I was just going to say that. <laughs> so yeah. he was like, you might as well just take the chance and risk it to see what happens. Because mm. the basically he was saying the loss, the potential loss is very small. The potential gain would be very great. Yeah. Mm. So encouraging to any guys out there who, like me, are not the type to ask girls out very much. Um, it's worth it to go ahead and take the chance. Definitely. <laughs> Love that. I'll have to send Dan and thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that is our episode two of the Fishers of Men podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, you heard from Don Eden about her books, The Thrill of the Chase and Remembering God's Mercy. And, of course, Derek Sams in the studio. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can comment on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men, as well as on Twitter at LA Gone Fishing. We'd also, again, love to hear about your real-life dating moments or horror stories or hopeful moments. Feel free to send us a two-minute clip about your experience to our Gmail. Again, that's fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Laura Samara. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. And And I'm Derek Sams. And he's Derek Sams. (laughs) Until next time, keep swimming. Thank you. Good show, you guys.